you may be seated. Our text this morning comes from the fifth division of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. Verse 22, and Paul said, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Quite honestly, probably the most magnificent statement in the Bible about God is John's brief pronouncement where John declares in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, God is love. But I wonder, have you ever considered what a statement Paul makes here as a summation for Christianity? When love becomes the sole law of life and conduct, then Christianity has won its victory. When love becomes the sole law of life and conduct, Christianity has conquered finally and Christianity has conquered perfectly. When love becomes the law of life. And love becomes the law of conduct in the church. That is when the church will be able to fulfill its mission of seeking and saving the lost. When the individual life, mine and yours, becomes love-mastered and love-driven, then Jesus Christ has won His victory in the individual life. Now, in this fifth chapter of Galatians, before Paul makes this stupendous announcement, Paul has been cataloging the, and describing the works of the flesh. And then he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And he gathers up the whole truth into this one brief sentence. And Paul tells us unequivocally that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's after he makes that statement that he explains what other works are in the scope of that love. Right about now. Some of you are questioning why I'm taking this one phrase as being the fruit of the Spirit. Folks, when that one word is said, there is really no more left to be said. Now, don't misunderstand me. We must take all of the Bible and we must take all the words which follow. Because Paul wrote those words by the pen of inspiration. But I want you to look at the text in Galatians 5. Verse 19 reads, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. You notice something there? Do you notice the plural form of the language in that passage? The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now look again at our text in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
How many times have we read that passage with difficulty? How many times have we rewritten that passage as we read it? How many times have preachers rewritten that passage when they used it as a text? Because we want to make that passage read, but the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, and so forth. But that's not what the text says. The text says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. There is no denying that fact. But the one thing in our Bible that's not inspired is the punctuation. And if I were going to write this text out, I would feel perfectly justified in changing the punctuation from the way it is in the King James. And I would read it like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then I would insert parenthesis and write, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. You see, I believe that after Paul writes the numerous works of the flesh, and he says the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, he reaches his climax. And then he writes the final fact concerning Christianity in these words. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then, as if by way of explanation, so we don't treat the word love as insignificant nor minor or pass over it lightly, so we don't think of this love as merely something sentimental, Paul then gives us the qualities and quantities and flavors of the fruit of the Spirit by breaking it up into its component parts. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And in that love you find joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Paul is essentially saying, if you have love, you have all of these things. If you lack love, then you lack all of these things. You see, love is the all-inclusive word in this passage. Love is the very essence and core and heart of Christianity. If the very nature of God is love, as John said, God is love, then those who want to live God's kind of life will have as the very essence and core of their life also the love that God has. Now, as Paul gives us the flavors of this love, this fruit of the Spirit, as he tells us what this fruit of the Spirit is going to taste like, he first tells us about the inward graces. He talks us, tells us about joy. Now, joy is a pretty commonplace word. We've talked a lot about it. Joy does not signify or denote an ecstasy that occurs once, and then when it passes, leaves the soul on a deader level than before it came. Joy is not one of those red-letter days 
on the calendar of our lives. But joy is a very simple word. It means cheerfulness, gladness, and common delight. It's that peculiar and wonderful quality which when joy is present in our lives, it changes everything into light and peace and happiness. The cold, cruel, selfish heart knows no joy. Joy is the consciousness of love. Peace. Peace does not indicate stagnation. It's the peace that follows battle. Peace is the holy calm that's breathed into our souls by a merciful Father. These works of the flesh Paul has mentioned earlier, the works of the flesh, they disturb the tranquility of the soul. The works of the flesh make the soul restless, uncomfortable, ill at ease. But when the flesh with its passions and lusts are crucified, a peace that passes all understanding comes and fills our souls. Write this down. It's on the final exam. Learn to love and you will have peace. Joy and peace, those are the inward graces. And then he mentions the graces toward men. Long-suffering. That's been defined as the long and patient endurance of offense. Long-suffering. We use that a lot, but we don't really have a comprehension of it. Let me put it another way. Something we can understand pretty easily. Long-temperedness. Now, that's a word that most people do not understand. So I'm going to give you the opposite of it, because it's a word we're all familiar with. Short-temperedness. How many of you men have had your wife at some point or other say, why are you so short-tempered? Oh, come on. Okay, some of you are grinning. That means you just don't want to hold your hand up. I understand that. She's sitting next to you. Mine's way back there. She can't, she can't even throw anything this far. Short-temperedness. Long-temperedness. Long-suffering is long-temperedness, and long-temperedness is the exact opposite of short-temperedness. The heart at peace with God has patience with others. And the man or woman on the top side of God's green earth who is impatient with their fellow man is not at peace with God. This grace of long-suffering, it enables us to endure injury. It enables us to bear unjust criticism. It enables us to meet all manner of opposition and persecution without aggravation and irritation. 
long-suffering is the broad shoulders on which Christian character beareth all things. Now in the first Corinthian letter, verse 13, what does Paul say about love? It bears all things, doesn't it? Long-suffering is that quality of love that helps us as God's people to bear all things. Gentleness. Or as the American Standard Version translates it, kindness. Kindness is the offspring of love. Kindness is love's activity. Remember in that same 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, this same apostle said, Love suffers long and is kind. Now, the kindness here that's referred to is not to sentiment, but to service. Kindness. That is usefulness in a good sense. And always in small things. Kindness is the willingness to do simple things to help others. Long-suffering, long-temperedness is passive. Kindness is active. Long-suffering endures evil. Kindness overcomes evil. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 12, verse 20 and 21? If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And listen to it. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Well, my goodness, it's just what it says. It's goodness. That's a word I really wish that we used more often than we do. Because goodness is the twin sister to kindness. And what we've done, more often than not, is we have demoted goodness to the nursery. When our children are little, we tell our children, well, now you be good now. What then is the inspiration of goodness in a child? It's love. We may keep our children good in the externalities when we have them at home by being good moral policemen. It's, it's, it's kind of like the story I've told you before about Matt one time. Matt one time had someone ask him, this was after he was grown. Someone asked Matt, they said, Matt, when you were a teenager, what was your encouragement? What was your source of strength? What, what motivated you to, to want to always go to church and get up on Sunday morning and go to church when you were a teenager? He said, oh no, really. I never thought about it. And this person, she said, well, you know, I mean, what, what, was, what, what was it that, that made you every Sunday morning want to get up and go? Was it a big youth group or what was it? He said, no. He said, on Sunday morning, Mom would come in the room that my brother and I shared and she'd say, boys, y'all need to get up and get ready for church. Well, what if you just decided you didn't want to go that day and just stayed in bed? He said, well, if we stayed in bed, 
after five minutes, Mom came back in and said, Boys, I told you once, I'm not telling you again, you need to get up and go to, get ready to go to church. We're going to be late. Well, what would have happened, Matt, if you had just stayed? What, what happened when you didn't get up th- that time, that this person said? He said, I don't know. He said, after Mom came in the second time, my brother and I always got up. Well, well what motivated you? He said, well... We knew that if we didn't get up when Mom came in the second time, that Mom wasn't coming back in. And that the third time, it was going to be Dad that came in. And that when Dad came in, it was not going to be pretty. It was not going to end well for me and my brother. And we were still going to be going to church. And so that's my point. While we have our children at home, we can, we can keep them good in the externalities by being good moral policemen. But, if we want to bind them to goodness throughout life, we've got to make inside of them something that when when they come to the city and they're confronted by sin, they will say, no, I can't do it. Because if I do it, it's going to make Dad's hair turn gray and break my mother's heart. I'm not sure our boys were so concerned about breaking mother's heart or listening to all the conversation they would listen to, but they didn't want to break mom's heart. Jesus said this. Are you listening? It's in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Friends, that is the whole philosophy of goodness right there. And we will never be good because while we're aiming to be good because we might lose our respectability by being bad. When we love God, when love is in our hearts and we can say, I cannot grieve my Father in heaven. That is the true inspiration of goodness. And faith, or as the American Standard Version translates it, faithfulness. And with complete accuracy and with doing no violence whatsoever to the text, this could be translated as fidelity. The good old-fashioned virtue, there's not a lot of it in our world anymore, but it's that good old-fashioned virtue of being true to your commitment and true to your duty. Where there is love, Infidelity is impossible. Where love is sentinel, will always be found at the post of duty. Where love is the inspiration, we will never fail in our faithfulness to our commitment, to our friends, to our companion, to our acquaintances, or to God. And then the graces that look toward self. Meekness. That's active humility. That's unconscious humility. Meekness is self-repression, which does not parade itself. Meekness is the antidote of strife, contentions, and things of that nature. Meekness is something that accepts the inevitable trials and misfortunes of life. 
without a murmur. Though the meek individual is aggressive in the Lord's work, they're not eager to put themselves forward. They're not eager to have their way about things or make a display of their gifts or their powers or their talents. When you think about love, meekness is the tone of love. And then there's temperance or self-control. That's the mastery of self that has to be applied to the entire man. Temperance is having control of my thoughts, my passions, my tongue, and my life. If meekness is the tone of love, self-control is the victory of love. Well, all of these attributes, all of these flavors, how do we attain them? Let's go back to the very beginning. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The only way to have these qualities of character is for us to make Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master of all of our lives. Not just part of our lives, but every part of our lives, all of our lives. It's for Jesus to be Lord and Master of my life at 7 o'clock Monday morning as much as He is between 10.45 and 11.45 on Sunday morning. When you have fruit trees, what do you have to do? You have to cultivate them. Just like any other fruit tree requires cultivation. The fruit of the Spirit is something that requires cultivation also. But the primary motivation and the primary cultivation is to love the Lord. Because when we love the Lord, we're going to live His kind of life. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Are there changes that you need to make in your life for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of your life? If there are changes that need to be made, and we can help you with those changes, this is your opportunity to come and do that as together we stand and while we sing.